you, Bonnie and Linda, as always. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 32. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen as we go through it. Um, all right, thus far in Genesis, we're coming up to Jacob. And um, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jacob was on his way back to Canaan. He had just gotten done with Laban, but now he has an even bigger problem. And that's his brother Esau. And as we remember, Esau... Well, he wasn't happy with Jacob when he left. That's the why, reason why Jacob left to begin with, because of fear that Esau was going to murder him. And so now, after he's sent out some delegates to Esau, Jacob has learned that, okay, Esau's coming to meet him with 300 men. And so basically, Jacob is worried. He's thinking, oh no, I'm about to be attacked, and all of my belongings, and all my family, and everything is going to be taken away from me. And so he has a lot of fear. Um, and so that's where we left off. We left off with him sending out actually a, bu a bunch of um, gifts to his brother in hopes to placate him and in hopes to, to make him not attack. Um, and this is coming on the night then. That night, what happens, and with the next morning, how he's going to visit see his brother, what happens to him in the evening um, and in the night. So verses 22 through 23. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. Um, and I'm cutting off verse 24 there because it goes into the next section. So we continue with Jacob's story in the middle of the night. Upon sending everything across during the day, he awakes in the night and takes his family to the ford of Jabbok. And now once there, he sends them across with all of the rest of his belongings that he has. We can only conjecture at this point as to the reason for this action. Um, like, why did he do this? Was it because Jacob was too worried to sleep over the upcoming confrontation with Esau? Um, unfortunately, we can't be sure. We just know that he decided to be left alone for a little bit. And so all we know is that he did, again, is that he sent his family forward and the rest of his belongings, and he was left all alone. And the last time, though, that he was left alone the way that he was in his story, he had a vision at Bethel where he encountered God. Um, and so now we come to the next verses and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him so then out of nowhere Jacob is for all manners attacked by a man we notice how the text described a man wrestled with him the term wrestled in Hebrew is actually similar to both Jacob and Jabbok in the way it's in the way it's um, said, so one commentator goes so far as to say that the the man Jacobed Jacob basically he Jacobed him. Some have greatly wondered about this scene in general. Some scholars go so far as to say that the original story, um, and this is conjecture, and I don't think it's true, but they say that oh well Jacob must have wrestled of a Canaanite river god. Uh, hence what we see about what's happening with the day being broken in a minute. Still, this, however, seems unlikely as the story itself uh, it leads to another thought concerning the identity of the man. Regardless, we recognize this is not merely a man. As in the wrestling match, he was unable to prevail against Jacob. He's unable to get away or unable to pin him down, so to speak. Then, with a mere touch, he put Jacob's hit out of joint. At this point, we see that this is no normal person. The text describes the situation as literally a mere touch. Thus, we learn as well as Jacob that he is wrestling with a supernatural being, not just a human being. 
So now we come to the verses um, 26 through 30. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So as the day begins to break, the man demands to be let go. Many wonder, why is, is it so important for the day to have been broken? Um, it is because, is it because a supernatural being wants to return to God, as some have speculated? So uh, maybe he's an angel and he wants to go back to God to worship him. Or is it that the day means it loses its power? Um, these are all speculations that some scholars have tried to put forward, uh, which are answered as we continue. So we're just going to ignore those. Indeed, Jacob recognizes this being is more than a man and demands to be blessed. Despite the power of this being, it causes Jacob to fight even more ferociously. He wants to hold on. I'm not going to let go. As such, he will continue to cling to the being until the blessing has been given. He will not let go a moment before. The man asks for Jacob's name. Now, this is interesting because it is reminiscent of something that we have experienced before. We have encountered a number of times when God would ask a question he already knew. For example, when he was searching for Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, where are you? He knew where they were. Um, or when we consider what happened with Abel, he asked Cain, what happened to your brother? And Cain knew, and so did God. He knew already what happened. Thus, the question causes us to recall a hint of who it is, this supernatural being, who he really is for those of us who have studied Genesis thus far. Yet, we also receive something else. In telling his name, Jacob also describes his character. As we remember, Jacob means heel catcher and supplanter. This is not necessarily a positive thing. As Esau previously has said, is he not rightly called Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. At this point, the unnamed figure renames Jacob. Indeed, this will no longer be his name, but instead his name will be Israel, which, as the text says, means to strive with God, with man, though specifically with God. In this, we have two different thoughts. The first is how Jacob's name is changed, but with that comes a change of character. From now on, he will not be a supplanter, but a truly changed individual, as we will see shortly. The second is how, with the name change, he will always be able to reflect on the blessing itself. After this, Jacob requests to know the name of the one whom he has struggled with and whom he has been blessed by. The answer is somewhat surprising as the individual does not disclose this information. Seeing as in the text, Israel makes it known that God is the one whom he has striven against, it is likely, as some scholars note, that God does not disclose his name, lest it be abused. As such, the man leaves as mysteriously as he disappears. He's just gone now. So at the end of the encounter, Jacob calls the name, uh, the place a new name. And this is similar to the experience at Bethel. Um, when he encountered God, he named the place Bethel, which is house of God. Now he names the place Peniel, which means face of God, face of God. As such, Jacob recognizes the encounter he has had with God himself, and as such, names the place as a reminder for the experience, for the encounter which he just had. 
Likewise, we see this in Jacob's final thought. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Despite his physical prowess, he recognizes the only reason he is still alive rests on the fact that God was really gracious. While the physical manifestation seemed one in which God was weak, in the end, Jacob recognizes the true strength of God and his own weakness against that God. The fact that Jacob uses the word delivered here also reflects back onto his prayer concerning his upcoming encounter with Esau. There he had prayed for deliverance in this situation with Esau. And as such, if he has been delivered from facing God and not being obliterated, he has nothing to fear concerning his brother Esau. And then we come to the final two verses of the chapter. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of that thigh. So the closing of the encounter has the sun rising to a new day. Yet Jacob, he has been changed with the encounter. He continued on a limp. The encounter with God was not one which has no effect. Instead, God leaves his mark on Jacob as he presses forward. Finally, there is a brief mention that the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh on the hip socket. Now, this is interesting because there is no place in the law which forbids this. Um, as such, it is a reflection of the Jewish custom in remembering what God had done in regards to Jacob. And as one commentator put it, it may be a reminder of the nation's own election. So, the main point of this passage is to describe an event in which Jacob wrestled with God. In the end, Jacob was victorious in that he, blessed, he was blessed by God. But the encounter it left its mark on many ways. First, in the changing of Jacob's name to Israel and also with the limp he had after the encounter. Ultimately, Jacob recognized God's grace in the situation as he is delivered after seeing God face to face. All right, so we have one application point from this, and this is close encounters with God. I was really tempted to put close encounters of the third kind. I did not do that. Come on, people. Anyway, so this text is a very interesting on a number of different levels. Um, whether it's the mysteriousness of it or how God and Jacob are encountering one another. Regardless, with this comes also an interesting point in the life of Jacob. Um, and that is, with the encounter with God, he has changed in so many ways. Indeed, this is something which has been lacking in American Christianity for many years. We seem to have forgotten that when someone has an encounter with God, it leads to something more than repeating words or repeating a prayer. For many years, we have been so fixated on individuals confessing Jesus as Lord that we forgot what it means for him to actually be the Lord of all. Because of this, there are many in our communities and across the nation who believe that they are right with God and yet have no true experience with him or have never had one. Indeed, it is doubtful that they have ever had any true experience with him despite someone at one time saying that they are right with God because they prayed. Once they've been encouraged to profess Christ as Lord, we declare them saved, no strings attached. Now, this is little more than a get-out-of-hell-free card, as Mike likes to say sometimes. And it's an understanding of salvation, right? As it is, true salvation does not really look like that. Because true salvation leads to sanctification, and a lifestyle which informs the world that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. 
It leads to people being changed further and further into conformance with the image of Christ. Unfortunately, because we've placed so much emphasis on the expression, on the confession, many believe that they are believers, and yet they are actually very, very far from God. Even more unfortunate is that this is one of the oldest tricks of the devil. To take something which is truly good, like confession of faith, and use it to deceive many. For that is the goal of darkness, to take what is good and turn it for evil. Thus something which used to have great significance as a means to explain how individuals felt after being seized by the power of a great affection turns into little more than a cliché at best, or a downright lie at worst. And that kind of a lie can lead to dire things within our communities, indeed with our very souls, for there is no greater lie than that which is that one is close to God when they are truly worlds apart. This is why today's text is so important for us, because it reminds us that an encounter with God is a lasting encounter. If one is truly to encounter the almighty God, then that encounter will have an effect upon you and myself. It will be an individual who is seized by the power of a great affection and being seized in such a way causes an individual to be transformed by that affection. It causes the individual to desire that which it once hated, clinging to goodness, to mercy, to grace, to love to the God who was once the enemy and who is now the Lord. Indeed, consider what we learn from Romans 6 when Paul writes, Let, us, let not sin therefore reign in your, natu- in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to the impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is it that Paul is reminding us of here? It is that grace changes us. While we may live under grace, that does not mean that we live however we want to, or in the state of sinfulness, which we once were so desperately clinging to. Instead, the grace found in Christ leads us to living in congruence with God, being obedient followers of Him. 
Thus, an encounter with God leads to such a lifestyle. It leads to one who desires to obey God. No longer seeking to live in sin, but instead desiring to stand against sin in our lives. We are slaves of sin, but since Christ, we are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which we were committed. As such, we look radically different because we are radically different than what we once were. Yet, as Paul says, it is by God's grace that this is the case. It is only because of God we are able to stand against sin, which used to hold us so closely. It is only because God has made an encounter with us, and that this encounter has led to a strong foundation of grace and peace in Christ. In this, we are like Jacob then. For while Jacob had his encounter with God and was radically changed, so we too encounter God and are changed. We are changed inside and out. We have a different Lord, not sin and death, which held us, but the Lord of all, our Father in heaven. It is only by his great and steadfast love that such a change can occur within us. So again, all of this is making an important point to us. God will not be mocked. While there are those who claim to have experiences with God, the truth is, those who have a true experience with God will live a life differently, circumspectly in the world, seeking to weed out sin rather than to allow it to grow. For the truth is, a confession of faith is not the only evidence that one has experienced God. No, the greatest of evidence is the bearing of good fruit in keeping with repentance. Not because God is forcing it upon you, but because you recognize the love of God so greatly in your life that to love him and to delight in him becomes the most important part of your life. Thus Jesus becomes the Lord of all things in your life. There is nothing which falls outside of his sovereignty when it comes to this cosmos and that is true when it comes to your life. All things, they all belong to him. Now some consider him to be lesser, to be something you rely on sometimes, you know? But those who have truly experienced him will know that he is all we rely on. Nothing can compare to him. Nothing can compete with him. For he is great and mighty. Because of that, because that is the truth, God does not want pieces of us. He isn't satisfied with having a little or a partial. No, he will only be satisfied with the whole of who you are. Every dot, every iota, Consider that for a second. He will not be satisfied with only a small piece of you. Now, some will consider that to be a bit demanding. Or some will think, what right does God have to want all of me? Yet you'd be looking at it from the wrong perspective. If God is wholly good, and if he is altogether great and wonderful, and if his ways are perfect, then to be wanted by God completely is not something to scoff or deride. Instead, it's something which should cause us to rejoice. Because I know myself. I know that there are things about me I don't like. There are things about me sometimes I think, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want my brokenness. He doesn't want my failures. But that is the exact opposite of the truth. For the truth is, he wants all the good with the bad. And he will take the bad and turn it into good. He will take the desert stones in our hearts and turn it into bread, the dirty clothes, and make them spotless. 
It isn't God being overbearing which causes him to desire all of who we are. No, far from it. It is his great love for us through his son Jesus. The reason he wants all of us, all of who we are, is because Christ died for all of who we are in our joys and sorrows, in our failures and our successes, our tears and our laughter. For so long, we have ignored this very simple reality when it comes to salvation and have focused so greatly on the confession aspect of it that we have neglected the great significance of a loving God who wants all of our lives because he loves us so dearly. Because his ways are simply that much better than our own. And we in our sin cannot compare with the greatness of God's glory and holiness. Thus, when we experience God, we can expect to be changed because God is great and his love is so deep and so strong, which is given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He changes us. And that is not a bad thing, but a good thing. Because he is good. And he would not desire us to change unless it were for good. Unfortunately, we oftentimes think that we know what's best. We oftentimes think that we know better than God. We fight so hard to maintain control instead of submitting to the life he has for us. To that I say, enough. Let us not fight, but let us embrace this God who has redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us desire to glorify him with all of who we are now and forever. So what can we say other than pray for encounters with God? Pray whether it comes in the dark of night, when you are deep in fear, lost in sorrow and anxiety like Jacob was, or whether it comes peacefully when you're looking up at the night sky on a cloudless and moonless night and you see all those beautiful stars. Or whether you're screaming and crying out to God to come down when you're on the mountain, angry, needing salvation, needing help. Or whether you're with friends and family, taking comfort in those you love. Desire encounters. Don't run for them, from them. Take joy in your experiences with God and let him change you through those experiences. And truthfully, pray for the world around you, this town, this community, that all within would experience God and find a joy and fulfillment which only he provides. Pray that God would encounter everyone in this town so that they would be changed, truly changed, from darkness into light. Pray that God would make himself known all around us so that we and everyone else would see him face to face. Finally, rejoice. Because the truth is, there have already been encounters with God here. We have each encountered the love of God given through his son, Jesus Christ. And rejoice knowing that love causes a change within us to desire him more and more. Rejoice for the encounters which God gives us and the encounter which we hope for in the future when all things are made right, an encounter where we will be with him and experience him face to face forever. Two weeks ago that we were going to be having a few short sermons because it was a lot easier to do that than make you guys stay for three hours. So that's what we're doing. Um, And so when it comes to the gospel, 
I mean, I think that we can see it here. We can see it very clearly in regards to the life of Jacob. Jacob is kind of us in so many different ways. Um, he, well, every time I think about Jacob, I think, man, is he just living my story? <laughs> um, with how many times that he's faltered and so many times that he's failed, and yet God still takes him out of his brokenness and leads him into salvation. Uh, to me, it's a wonderful story, and I love it. Regardless, in regards to the gospel of Christ, we see the origins, in which case we're talking about this so much in Sunday school these days, um, about how the origins of the universe don't start by chance, but they start by God and his grace and his mercy and how he creates all humanity. And as we talked about with the kids today, you know, all humans are made in the image of God. Every human, no matter who you see on the street, no matter who you see in the news, that person that you detest, yeah, even they, they are made in the image of God. Those people that we get really angry with, guess what? They're made in the image of God too. And unfortunately, the reason why you sometimes detest people, and sometimes you look at them and say, oh, they make me so mad, um, whether it's some kind of world leader, for example, who does something really awful. You know, the reason why we get so mad at these people who do injustice is because of the fall. Because we recognize something that is deep within us that says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Humans aren't supposed to be this way. We aren't supposed to murder just for the sake of murder. We're not supposed to just take life for the sake of taking life. We're not supposed to encourage injustices such as slavery, whether it be modern-day slavery in which women are taken from their homes or children taken from their homes, or the slavery back then. In which case, it was basically the same. We're not supposed to enjoy that. We're supposed to be angry about things like that. And we're supposed to fight against that. But all those things happen. All the awful things in our world happen because of the fall. Because from the fall onward, we tasted sin and we grasped at it. And we keep grasping at it. And because of that, we deserve judgment for our sins. Because of that, that, that sensation in you that when you see an injustice and you think, mm, I want something done about it. That's what we deserve. We deserve something done about it. And unfortunately, because we all sin, we all deserve that mm, justice. And so that's why we always have to remember to point it back at ourselves whenever we see that. Because that's what God's saying. <laughs> You've broken my law, every single one of you. You've all lied. Christ even goes so far as to say you've murdered in your heart. You've done the worst of the worst, every single one of you. You deserve judgment. But that's where our hope lies. And we do have hope and we do have faith because we have found redemption through Jesus Christ. That through him, even though God may originally be pointing a finger at all of our sins and saying, you deserve justice, you deserve judgment, Christ comes and he says, I take that punishment on myself. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we have freedom from sin, as we talked about today. We have freedom from death itself because of Jesus. How wonderful this redemption is. How wonderful the change of being brought from death into life. Of being Jacob, supplanters of God almost, in all the world. 
to being those who are with God. Not only now, but forever. And that's only because of the redemption found in Jesus. It's all his work. All it requires is faith. And that faith leads to redemption, to repentance, and to a changed life. And where's it all leading in the end? We didn't really talk about it today with, with Jacob. Actually, we did. You know, because in the end, Jacob says it very well, doesn't he? I've seen God face to face, and what? I was delivered. We are going to encounter God face to face. Every single one of us. In Revelation, it talks about it. It's called the white throne judgment, as we sometimes call it. You have, have any of you heard of that? Thank you, dude. <laughs> and Joanne. There comes a moment when everyone encounters God face to face at the white throne judgment. And what happens? Those who are written in the book of life, they go into the lake of fire. Sorry, you know what I meant. Sorry. Instead of reverse. Those who are not found in the book of life. Thank you, Mike, for catching me there. Um, Anyway, those who are not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. But those who are found in the book of life, they go into eternal bliss, where they get to experience God forever in his love. In other words, you experience God face to face, and you're delivered, just like Jacob. And that's wonderful. And it's also interesting because if you ever notice in there, there's also a really interesting moment when um, their, their names are on a stone and each person has their own name. A different name. Just like Jacob. Weird, isn't it? Funny how scriptures always talk about themselves in that way. Anyway, the point is this. We see so much of ourselves in Jacob. We see so much of ourselves in regards to the redemption, the fall aspects, the, the glorification. Obviously, it's there too. Um, ultimately, we see so much about this. And it's something to always point us back to Jesus. It always does in the end. And that's the wonder about Scripture. He's always there. From the beginning to the end, it's all saying, there's Jesus. Praise him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jacob, for his story, for his encounter with God, because it reminds us so much of ourselves. It reminds us that we, too, have encounters with you. That we, too, are going to have an encounter with you, in which case we, too, will be delivered. And we are delivered because of what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we move forward, Lord, we ask that we would have courage. Courage to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel message, to proclaim how... From the beginning to the end, you have a plan to save us from our sins. And Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done. We thank you that you are the God of all, that you are the Lord, and that in the end, justice will reign supreme, and that redemption can be found. We thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.